You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with John Thrasher. He is a seasoned senior management professional with over 25 years executive management experience, proven ability to tackle new challenges, critical assess situations, think strategically, implement tactically, and execute consistently. On today's show, we talk about how do you set KPIs for your company? What normally takes a company from good to great? When working with a client, how do you measure success? What is strategic planning? How does one go about preparing a company for sale? And much more. All right, let's dive into this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, John, I want to thank you for being on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Before we begin, I really want to thank BAM, which is the Bay Area Middle Market Group. It's a provisors group here in Silicon Valley. It's where John and I connected that fostered the relationship that, well, the seed that got planted for this week's episode. So, John, before we start, We've had some conversations. Your background is amazing. Could you tell our audience, you know, give us a little little background of your career up until this point? First of all, thank you very much. It's really an honor to be on your podcast. Grew up in the Midwest. First job was with EI DuPont Demours and Company in Wilmington, Delaware. Second job, I worked with Ford Motor Company, was in charge of North American profitability analysis. My third job with the Fortune 500 company was with Atlantic Richfield. One of my jobs there was I was in charge of mergers, acquisitions, and strategic planning worldwide for one of their divisions. Subsequent to working with Arco, I did a lot of work with consulting with a lot of middle market companies. Additionally, I also ended up uh, running as CEO or COO uh, four different middle market companies. And I am consulting. I just finished running a solar company, and I'm now back uh, running my consulting practice again. John, now with this amazing career, there's been the markets going up, the markets going down, the markets going sideways. With kind of the volatility, with the craziness going on right now in Silicon Valley and the world, people are nervous. How would one go about recession-proofing a company? Well, first of all, let me say a couple of things. Number one, change has always been with us, and we're we're aware of that in the business world. Some some organizations actually cope better with change than others. And one of the things I remember is it's not the strongest of the species that survive, not the most intelligent, but the one that's most responsive to change. So the way I would go about recession-proofing and the way we do it it's everything we do as in a business involves strategic thinking, whether it's the CEO just thinking about himself or whether it's a planned process of a whole group. So we apply a strategic process to recession proofing. You first want to take a look at where you are, what's your reality right now, and, and what's the internal assessment? What's our external assessment? Then we like to run two different scenarios, one being the worst case scenario. And once you do the worst case scenario, you actually divide it up into a sheet with maybe five columns and you list 
what's going to what you expect to happen, what's going to be your response to that, who's going to be responsible for that with a date and a time. So there's accountability. One of the big things that we find is that most companies, if they're not using KPIs or strategic planning, they end up, there's not much accountability, which is an issue. And there's been more accountability, lack of accountability now with remote work. And I've heard a lot about that. But what we do is we do that worst case scenario. So we've already figured out what we're going to do if sales go down by a certain percentage. We put in triggers. So at each level that its sales go down or profitability goes down, we institute a certain action and someone is responsible for doing that. And so that's why it's so important that we have key performance indicators, KPIs that are real time so that we can look at that, know when we have to take those actions. And then we also do a most likely case and a high case, because even if recession there could be some real opportunities. You might be able to pick up a competitor. You might be able to pick up a product line. So it's not all negative. There are some positive things that come can come about with regarding to this. So recession planning is like a strategic planning process with KPIs. That's incredible because I'm thinking about, well, one, what you said right there about who's responsible in what situation and, and the accountability factor. So many companies early stage companies pointing fingers, who does what, or one person's, they're not in charge of HR, they're in charge of 20 different things. A small team of four, everyone's wearing so many hats. So how does a company, a startup where a few people are doing many things, how, how should they look at the worst case, okay case, best case when dividing up those tasks with the importance, the tricks, because analysis paralysis, I'm guessing. Right. Part of the issue is when you sit down, if you're starting up a company, and as I think you're probably aware, I taught at UCLA entrepreneurship for 12 years. One of the key things is you have to sit down with people, find who's going to be responsible for what. Make sure that those are delineated specifically. For example, you're in charge of HR. I'm in charge of this. You're in charge of M&A. And you might have a long list of things that you're responsible for, but you divide up on who's responsible for what function. Then when you do your KPIs, you can do a dashboard that just lists your own responsibilities based on the the triggers and the timeline and what's happening with real data. I will talk a little bit later, if you want me to, about situations where people were not using real-time data and got themselves in some real issues. You know, and it, that's a huge problem if you're... <laughs> John, just just yeah. start talking about data. You don't need me to queue up a question for you. Just, just oh. go into it. Tell us about, well, why do companies sometimes not have the data that they need or, you know, what, what data should companies have? Well, there's a lot of key issues here that you're bringing up. Data is so important. A lot of companies just look at their financial statements. That's history. That can't tell you what's going on now. And a a perfect example was that I had a distributor that called me and said, we're having declining sales. Please come in and take a look. So I went in, I took a look, and I found out they'd been out of stock on some of their top-selling KPI, I mean, um, top-selling SKUs for two or three months. Of course, their sales are going down. They didn't have the, the inventory because they were looking at old data. 
Now, the other thing that I find is a lot of entrepreneurs look at finance as a cost area, not as something that can provide value. So as, as a result, they're not always have the most experienced people in the finance function, which also affects the data you get, also affects when you want to sell your company. So those things are all tied. Now, data depends on what, as as you know, depends on what enterprise system you're using, what you're looking at, what kind of information you have. All of those can be customized to provide key data for each department. For example, in your marketing, you might want to have information on your CAC, your customer acquisition cost. You might really want to look at all the different sources where you get leads. And then you probably want to follow where you're getting your leads. And you also want to see what happens to those leads. How many are successful? Where do they go? What happens in the process for the ones that weren't successful? So that's information that you can keep on the operations area. So a lot of companies have information. They just have not put it into functional, useful data that they can see. And what I find is it's so much easier when you have a dashboard to look at and you can see something right away rather than handing somebody a, a Excel spreadsheet and then you got to figure out your numbers and so forth from there. And it and then you also with the dashboard, you can highlight areas that are red or green or yellow. Red is in trouble. What, what are we doing about this? Green, everything's fine. I don't have to worry about that one. So when you have a lot of information to keep track of and that you're responsible for, you need something like that so you can identify what you should be spending your time on. Now, this involves just, number one, getting having somebody come in and help identify the key KPIs that you need. Then you need somebody, depending on the system that you're using, the enterprise system, to modify that system to get the KPIs that you want in the dashboard. Now, it depends. If, if you're a startup, yes, you can do this just on, on your computer and just have a simple dashboard. For several of our clients, we actually put in monitors. So in the sales department, there was a monitor that showed every one of the salespeople what they were doing. And... So that was so very important to keep everybody moving and motivated. And the same thing, we have a CFO dashboard, we had a CEO dashboard. You can have team dashboards, you can have for one individual a, da a dashboard. So that's what it really comes down to. And, and most people, unfortunately, use their financials. And the financials are usually late, and they don't give you the information that you need. I love the idea of just the the salespeople with the dashboard up there, just by the competitive nature, probably seeing the number of calls, number of booked appointments, number of close, the, the pipeline. I love that idea. But there's one thing you'd mentioned in that that I'd like to dive a little bit deeper on, the financials as a cost. When should, I mean, a lot of early stage companies are thinking, well, well, I'll do the books myself or, okay, now we're a little bigger. I'll get a bookkeeper and they keep postponing or the CFO was their friend that majored in economics. When you hear something like that, I'm guessing your mind just blows, but yes, give us your yeah. thoughts. Yes, yes, it does. Because I've seen problems at various stages regarding the financials. It's, it's amazing, especially when you have things like we've just been through. You have COVID 
You've got to put in the PPP-1, the PPP-2, the ECR, all these other huge amount of data that you had to gather to get money back. And if, if you're looking for free loans and you can't even get the information in, I mean, that's amazing. So I've seen companies where we had to bring people in just to help to try to get the data. But to me, it's important that you have somebody who understands. Now, you can have a controller. You don't have to have a CFO right away. Controller to get your books up and running, to get things done smoothly. John, just stop you right there. For our audience that might not be familiar, controller, what should their role be? And where do they play in the CFO versus the controller versus kind of that that stack? Controller handles the actual accounting, the debits and credits that go on in the department to make sure costs get in the right categories to make sure revenue is recognized and so forth. CFO is somebody who is C-level executive. He also deals with the banks. He deals with the insurance companies. He manages the process of putting together the financial statements. So he's a C-level executive, whereas a controller isn't. Fantastic. And who right now, how do I say this? We talked about the importance of data real-time data. Everyone has should have access to it. How should it be? Who should be, I guess, checking it the most, giving it to who? Is it spread across the whole company or just for that C-level? No, no. It depends on the data you're talking about. For example, if we're talking about inspiring our salespeople, you need their sales data up in their office so they can see it. I mean, we put up these dashboards, electronic so everybody could see it. And when somebody hit a, a certain level, we'd go in, ring a bell, we'd, we'd buy champagne. You know, we really installed the competitive, instilled the, the, the competitive spirit among everybody. Financial data has to be kept very closely watched. So the CEO gets it, the COO, the CFO, uh, the final financial statements. Those are the key. You keep it segregated and separate. That's why I said you can do separate dashboards. And the key thing about using historical data, it's like you're driving your car, okay? To see in front, it's a big windshield so you can see what's coming. You have a small rear view mirror to see what's in the past. So that's what I like to think of But when you're talking about running your company, what's happened in the past has happened. You want to look forward and what you're going to be doing. I love that. I could I visualize looking over the next mountain, next hill or that that road that's going for miles. How do you go about and measure success? Personally, I don't have to work. I enjoy working because I really get a lot of satisfaction out of substantially increasing the success of my clients. As I think we talked about, I ran a renewables company for five and a half years. And by getting the right team and the right seats and getting the right people and the right aura going on and culture within the the whole company, we increased sales 470% and we increased the bottom line several hundred percent. That, to me, is a success. I enjoy that. I had another one that was an aerospace company, and I was it was run by two engineers. Another example of where it's important that the CEO understand financial information. These two guys that were running the company were engineers. They hired a CFO who was their friend. The bank put me into this assignment because they were started losing money. I got in there, I was in there about probably week and a half, two weeks. 
discovered the CFO had been embezzling money. He stole $2 million from them. That's a good friend. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, we, we actually submitted a 1099 to him for $2 million. But the part that was so interesting about this is one of their largest customers was a European company. And when they hired me, they were meeting, they were on a phone call with him and I was on the phone call and they were discussing the financial problems they were having and he was willing to work with them. So then he came to the United States and I think it was a couple months later, I met with him and I just started off regarding the offer that he'd sent before. And he goes, oh, no, 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 that's no longer on the table. You know, I, I can't do a French accent. So I looked at him. And I started packing up all my belongings. And he looked at me and says, what's wrong with you? I said, well, I read your mind and I got bored. And I got up and I walked out of the office. And he comes running after me and he says, what do you have to say? And I said, well, number one, we're a single source provider. Number two, it'll take you two years to get somebody else certified to make this, these parts for you. And number three, you have no safety stock. And it was just great. I love to negotiate. And it was just wonderful because then all of a sudden, within half an hour, he called and we moved forward. The company then grew substantially. I helped them sell it. The two previous owners still work there, but the company's doing well. That's fantastic. Okay, so when you're talking to one of these companies, maybe you just came in as the CEO or, or they hired you to, to look things over. How do you go about setting key performance indicators, KPIs for the company? Well, there are a lot of different KPIs out there. I like to base uh, the initial ones for all industries can be based on what is known as a balanced scorecard, which was a book that was written years ago, but it's very valuable. It breaks it down into financial, customer, processes. There's four different categories. You use these to come up with, with KPIs within those categories. Now, if you're in a specific industry, there might be other KPIs that are industry-specific that you would build in. But you're going to want to look at cash flow. You're going to want to look at your revenue year over year versus prior year. You're going to look at your margins, your net profit margins, your gross profit margins. You want to look at customer retention. You want to look at new customers you're getting. As I said, CAC, you want to look at. Those are some of the things that you want to look. And there's a whole list of KPIs that you can put in, but you don't want to inundate somebody with too many KPIs. To me, you can have seven, eight, or nine responsible for one person, and they can take a look at those, and they're in charge of those, and they have to be on top of those. But when you have your management meetings, you look at all the KPIs. Oh, that's interesting. I, I'm gonna look at look into this book for our audience out there. Check out our show notes. We'll try to find the the title of it and put it there. It's a quite an old book. It's called The Balance Scorecard. It gives a great uh, way to divide your business and what to look at. Fantastic. And when you're looking at these KPIs or building them out, also are you creating plans for these KPIs to increase sales? to cut costs, to de-risk the company, or are you creating plans focused on other things? Well, everything ties together because obviously if you're not getting the leads you need, then you're not getting the sales you want. And if your processes are not working effectively 
and you're losing customers in the middle of the process, that all affects the whole company. So they all kind of tie together. That's why the CEO and the COO and the CFO really should be looking at those key, all of the key indicators. And it's important to, I don't want to get away from the fact that I'm a big believer in strategic planning or what I call strategic thinking. Strategic thinking is important. People don't understand planning does not deal with making future decisions. Planning deals with the effect of decisions we make or decide not to make today on the organization's future. And it's important to have goals so that you can have these KPIs. The reason you have the KPIs is to measure how well you're doing against where you want to be. And too many people don't do that. And the other pro- the reason I'm a big believer in KPIs is because if you've done and once you've done strategic planning, statistics have shown less than 10% of these strategies get implemented. It's because they're not tracked. And once you're tracked and somebody's accountable, they get done. And it makes a huge difference in your business. And, and you know, to me, because people end up having what is known as strategic drift. And when you get that, it's like John Maxwell said, if you're leading and no one is following you, you're just taking a walk. And, and that's literally what this is. So you've got to look at not only planning or strategic thinking, but also the execution and make sure that gets done. So speaking of execution, how are you going about communicating with the company's management team, the board, when you want to implement these new ideas and you're that brand new person coming into this business that could have been around 20, 30, 40 years or, or, or how, who knows how long? Mm-hmm. Well, it, it's usually, I mean, I'm referred in, all my business is all referral, literally. I, I, I don't do advertising to any extent, and it's mainly networking and referral. And, and mainly all the CEO, COO jobs I've had, I've been referred in as a consultant, and then I've been working there a couple of months, and they say, geez, we want you to be COO. So it's establishing, it's your reputation, it's what you've done, it's what people know you've done. It's like the company I told you, the increasing sales 490%. You know, people know that. They go, that's amazing. Now, I am not a salesperson, but I know how to get the right people and how to get the work out of them. And they still have a good culture so that it's a friendly culture. And, and while we're talking about it, there are some negative aspects, too. I had a client who was amazing in the renewable space who yelled and screamed at all his employees. We had turnover of 120% in a year and a half. And you cannot, it's very hard to build a good company when you treat people like that. How was he, how was this person able to do, build a company with that, that huge amount of turnover with that kind of toxic culture? I spent too much time there and I left because of the stress. It was it was just too much. He lost too many good people. We lost too many salespeople. We lost too many financial people. And his company, you can build it, but the key to everything is sustainability. And he's going to go through people continually and he's going to have a problem. And a lot of people, most entrepreneurs I deal with are smart enough to know not to treat people fairly. But this guy was not. He had a um, <laughs> one thing I'm going to do now in the future that I've never had to do before. 
is do a background check on all my my potential clients. This guy had a felonious uh, background. And so that's just something I, I've, I've had to do. But I hate to see, I mean, I like people to understand this because too often people think, oh, if I just keep on pounding on these people, at some point, they're going to just say, I've had it and I'm walk out. Well, the great resignation now, it's even more important now than, than it ever has been. Instead of one of these companies that you know, may have been in kind of a chaotic state and that you, you've come and worked with. What about a company that's already good? How do you take a company that's good and then make it great? Well, the perfect one is the one that uh, the uh, software company, that company, he and his wife had thought about selling their company and they got an initial estimate of 14 times, which is a good Good estimate. I mean, it, it and it was it, reasonable. He brought me in to do strategic planning and to do uh, KPIs. And once again, took a little convincing. Really good friend of mine now. Did the work, put in the KPIs. We found out two departments were not running up to capability. He wasn't aware of it because he was looking in the rearview mirror. So he had me fix those two departments. He just sold his company on December 31st last year. It was high 20 times. Wow. That is that is huge. Yeah. And John, please uh, look for me in the future. Our yeah. audience out there knows I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast. I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, and growth capital. Had to give my one plug for each episode. So, so John, John, continue with that. And actually, you'd mentioned that. How, how do you go about preparing a company for sale? Well, preparing a company for sale, part of the things that's very interesting is most entrepreneurs have never sold a company before. So number one, they don't know the kind of information that's going to be required from a private equity firm or from a, another firm. Uh, uh, so they're not familiar with that. And it, there's a tremendous amount of work. As I said earlier, they haven't spent the money they should have on the financial function. And so then when all of a sudden all the requests come in, they hire an investment banker. The investment banker gives them 20 pages of, of documents and say, please fill this out so we can put together all the sheets. They're befuddled. They, they don't know how to get it. They don't know where that information is. So we go in and we really kind of do what I call buy-side due diligence. We go in, we help them prepare all the stuff. Even I'll, I'll go through and put together all their documents and get everything together for them. So, for example, when we sold that company, the private equity firm put up the virtual data room and was shocked that a middle market firm had all this data prepared. We had a good valuation story. And we had helped the guy maximize his enterprise value. The other part that was interesting about that was that the owner, they wanted him to stay around for quite a while. But once they saw the KPIs and everything else we put in, they cut the time in half. They wanted him to stay. They said, this is running smoothly. You've got real-time data and all this. We can just send one of our people from the bench in to run that or from one of our portfolio other companies to run this without a problem. It's very interesting what you just said, because it comes up in a lot of conversations that I'll, that I'll have where an owner says, I want to sell my company, and then the next day be on a beach somewhere. And you talk to them and go, hey, reality is you're so key to the daily operation. You're going to be there for a couple of years, or you're going to get a, a price that you're not 
you're not thrilled about. It might be better to take a year, two years, put in the processes, get things moving, bring in some other people on on your team. And then once you have a year track record or that, then we go out to market. But can you address and and go a little deeper there? Because I don't think people quite understand when having processes, the, the multiples you can get and the well, the options of the buyer, the, how big of a pool it opens up and your freedom after. So, I, yeah. yeah. It, it, it's very, very important. I have talked to several people who literally were the company. And you sit down and say to them, look, you're either going to stay here a long time or you're going to have to hire somebody in who learns the business, who can keep the business going. On top of that, people don't realize that on average, it takes six to 12 months to do a deal. And that's an old number. It's probably longer now because of the multiples and people thinking their companies are worth even more than they used to and saying, why is it down now? But your management team is still going to have to run the company during that time. So you've got to have a good management team or a good set of data so that they can run the team while you're out trying to gather all this information that the potential buyer is going to want. Now, the owner, you just sit down and tell them, this is your option. You know, either you're going and on top of it, you're going to have a big earnout if, in fact, you're the key person there and they're going to want you to stay for at least a year or two. And a lot of people don't want that. And so then they have to look at what your options are. And the options are, as I said, either hire more people in, get better people to back you up so that you can go and have very, very good procedures, policies, documented and KPIs so that they can look at it and say, oh, we can send somebody in pretty easily to run this company. From your experience, and I know every company is completely different, how long would it take a company if they're adaptable if they are they might not be the smartest animal but they'll be the one that survives because they're oh i forget what you said already but but at the very beginning how long does it take to get kind of the procedures kpis get everything get the get people looking at the right data in the best case scenarios it it depends now once again you're talking about either company prepared financials or at least Reviewed statements makes a big difference when you're going forward because it says they have some procedures in effect already. But I would say a minimal just to get a company would probably be six months, three to six months, depending on how sophisticated they are and how good their financial, how good their uh, enterprise systems are. Because if if you don't have a good enterprise system or something like that, that's a big issue on trying to get the data you want. But if you've got a good enterprise system, you can do it quicker. When should a company start thinking about getting a new enterprise system? How far along maybe a revenue number or sales number or units or, you know, versus just Excel or quick? Oh, that's a, once again, to me, that's a difficult one. I would think depending on how much volume you're doing. And and I mean, you know, if you're selling $60,000 or $100,000 cars versus $20,000 cars, the volume is going to be a lot more or depending on the pricing that you have. And I would say anywhere you're probably in the industries I've dealt with, we look at trying to get a good enterprise system, usually around 15 to 20 million. You can get along with some of the QuickBooks up till then. It's, it's still a stretch, but it certainly helps to have a better, a good enterprise system, you know, and uh, Salesforce, I think the CRM system is, is key. And with that, do you have any stories of either 
companies you've worked with, companies you've heard of, companies. Do you have any stories that you could share with us? Leave out names. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've shared a couple with you already. Did some work with a company that was a security manufacturer and distributor. And without getting into a lot of detail, all their products built started from and came to a, a medium state. And then they'd modify it to make it a, a more sophisticated system or less sophisticated system. And this is a well-known company. And what they did was they would build each one from scratch. And it was owned actually by a European company. And so it was, I came in there, I said, look, we should just, we want to increase sales. We want to really get moving here. So let's build to that intermediate state. And then all we have to do is just make minor modifications to the sophistication of the product. And we were able to substantially increase output and sales. And that was another company we got ready for sale. And that helped substantially. They they were bought by Johnson Controls. All right. And we got a little bit of time left. I'm just kind of curious. What advice do you have for companies? You know, we're at the start of 2023. A lot of things happen in the news. What advice do you have for companies for this year? And we did talk about strategic plan and you love strategic plan. If you want to go deeper and give us more feedback on that at all, help yourself. Okay. Well, a little bit more on strategic planning. When people get involved with strategic thinking or strategic planning, the old classic philosophy was to build your strategy and then worry later about execution. You can't do that now. Nowadays, the two are side by side and have to be taken care of, as I said, with the accountabilities, the due dates, and everything else to hold everybody accountable. That's extremely important. You have to also make a link between the budget and your strategy, and you make sure your team is building, is buying into your strategies. Very, very important. And that's why they need to be involved and have their input. If you just come down and say, Sean, this is what we're doing, you're going to go, well, okay. But if you they're involved in the process, it certainly helps. What I am seeing now when you talk about 2023 is, I'm watching the clock here, <laughs> 2023, what I'm thinking is it's important. I'm getting more calls on people saying, you know, after COVID, after all of these things, I'm thinking of selling. And so now's a good time to start getting ready to sell and to make sure while you're doing that at the same time, you can do recession proofing because there's similar processes that you're doing with strategic planning and KPIs. You can ma uh, marry the two. And then when we come out of this, you're ready and and you sustained yourself through the difficult times and you come out ready to sell. That would be my suggestion right now. And it's really nice when you have that company that you can show has gone through hardships and survived and still had a little bit of growth or, or I mean, if buyers see that, oh, they, they, they love it. And John, I can't thank you enough for being a guest on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. Now, if anyone wants to find out more information about you, get in contact, what's the best way to go about doing it? They can reach me by uh, email at uh, jt at johnthrasherconsulting.com or on LinkedIn. All right. Once again, John, could you repeat that email just for our audience? jt at johnthrasherconsulting.com and LinkedIn. Thank Fan you. Fantastic. We'll have that information in the show notes. And for our audience out there, I know you're going to be listening to this episode multiple times. 
There's so much great content there. So take advantage, reach out to John. This is an amazing opportunity. And with that, I want to thank John once again for being this week's guest on the Silicon Valley podcast. Thank you very much. It was an honor. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.